This morning we have one of our church members who needs special prayer, has asked for special prayer, and so I'm going to ask that she make her way to the front, and while she's doing that, turn around and greet four or five people who are right around you. Yes, even you introverts, let's do it. Let's greet everybody this morning. After you've greeted folks, let's remain standing. Remain standing this morning for our time of prayer. A church family, when I had, uh, in 2011, I had just come back to this church as the lead pastor. And uh, so we went around the neighborhood and we invited people to come out and try Rushwood again. And uh, one of the people, one of the couples that we invited was Larry and Christy McKenzie. We asked they, them to come and try the church again, and they came, and they've never left. And they have been such a blessing to our church. We are so honored and glad that they are members of our church and part of this family. And today, Christy is coming for a special time of prayer. She has a special need that we're going to pray over this morning. And so I'd love to ask for you to just join. We do this a lot of times now, and it's great. I think God has built this into our service We'd like to ask that you come and if you want to support them and if you want to show them that they have a church family that loves them and cares about them, we'd like to ask that you come for this special time of prayer this morning. God's bigger than anything we face, amen? And he's good. He's, as C.S. Lewis said, he's not safe, but he's good. Our God is good. Our God is good, and he is worthy of every bit of our praise, every bit of our praise this morning. He's a good father over us. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you. God, we come before you because we know that on our own, we have no strength. On, and on, we, on our own, we have nothing special to offer, God. On our own, we are weak and we are frail. But you are strong and you are powerful. You are loving and you are good. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the name that is exalted above every name. There is no name given under heaven whereby we must be saved outside of the name of Jesus Christ. So today, Father, we exalt you. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. Holy Spirit, we exalt you. This is your church. We are your people. It's not about a building. It's not about a pastor. It's not about a worship team. It's not even about a service time. None of that's what it's about. It's about being connected. Jesus Christ as the head and we are his body. And God, when we, one of us has a need, we all have a need. That's how you've set it up, God. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as somebody who does this on their own. No, God, you want us to support each other and to bear each other's burdens. And God, we thank you for Larry, and we thank you for Christy, and we thank you for Nikki. We thank you for the rest of this family that has meant so much to this church. 
And they have done so much behind the scenes, Lord, that only heaven will tell the whole tale there. And God, we thank you for the growth in their life since they came back home to this place. We thank you how you have moved in and you have taken up residence in their household. And God, we praise you for being good again. And God, today Christy has a special need. She's coming to you. She's coming to you as the answer. She's putting her trust and she's putting her faith in you as the rest of the family is this morning. And so, God, we know you're never going to let us down. You're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us, God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And we thank you for what you're about to do. And Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we anoint in the name of the triune God who works all things to our good, who can never be stopped, who can never be overcome. And God, right now, I pray that you would meet this need. God, you would meet this need in such a way, meet this need in such a way that everyone knows it's miraculous. God, we want you to get the credit. Not a church, not a man. God, we want you to get the credit. So, God, we commend healing today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, work your work. Let your power be seen. Let your name be glorified in this situation, God. We thank you for what you're going to do in advance, God. We believe and we have faith. And, God, you're going to do more than we ask. We're going, you're going to do more than we ask. You're not just going to do what we ask. God, you're going to do more than we ask. And we thank you for being that kind of generous and wonderful God to us. You are Lord. And now, God, in this service today, we want you to have your way. We thank you that last week you had your way in our service, God. And we believe your Holy Spirit was here and lives were touched. And, and there was true ministry, God. And we pray that it would not be a blip on the radar, God, but we pray that it would be something that continues here. Lord, we pray that word would come forth from this church that you have shown up, that the Holy Spirit is here, that miracles are happening, that people are being delivered and set free. God, that people are being restored, people are being healed physically, spiritually, mentally. God, we want your name to be glorified. Not to our name, O oh Lord, but to your name be the glory. You are exalted above the nations. You are great and you are mighty and you are greatly to be praised. Lord, I pray as we talk about a portion of your word this morning that you would speak. And Lord, it would not just be head knowledge, God, but it would get down into our hearts. And that when we leave this place, we would be more like Jesus than when we came in. So, God, we ask that you would speak. Your word would speak. Your Holy Spirit would speak. God, if it's just my voice, there's nothing of any worth going to be said. So, God, we pray that you would speak today. Make it a spiritual word to us. Make it spiritual food to our lives, God. Strengthen us, change us, God, so that the world may know that Jesus lives. In his precious name, we pray all these things. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for the empty tomb. In the name of Jesus, we pray in faith. And we all say together, amen.
Thank y'all so much this morning. So much. You may be seated. Thank y'all so much for praying with us today. Just from your seats, you don't have to stand back up. I know you were standing for a while. But just from your seats, I wonder if before we dive in this morning, we could just have a little praise break. And we could just clap our hands and raise our voices and we could just exalt God's name. You can do it from your seats. If you want to stand up, you can. Nobody's going to stop you. But just from your seats, I just wonder on the count of three if we could just praise his name. Just for, just for a few seconds here this morning because he's worthy, right? And I had fun praising him as the worship team was up here this morning, and that was great. But I think I'd like to just praise him a little bit more this morning. So on the count of three, let's do something to exalt the name of Jesus. Okay, let's do something to exalt the name of God this morning. Cry out, clap your hands, whatever God lays on your heart. Okay, are we ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Jesus! Amen. 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 Church, he's been good to us. We ought to take some extra time to praise his name. We ought to take some extra time to praise his name. Well, look, I just want to say, you know, I usually give you a little bit before we dive into our sermon. And so I just want to give you a morning. The Lord laid it on my heart, and I felt like I needed to say it. I am glad. I am proud. I am happy. I am over the moon that we are a modern church. I like that we are trying to reach people that might not be reached by every church on every corner. I like that. Some people don't like that. Bless their hearts, I do like that. I, I, I like singing songs that have been modern, modernly written as God continues to inspire songwriters and musicians. I, I like that we have screens. Some people don't like that. I do like that. I enjoy that. I'm glad that we are that kind of church. Now, we're not stuck on thinking the latest thing is always the best thing. We're not like that, but I'm just, I'm glad that God led us there as a church. I think he's using that, and I think it's blessing his name. So I am very glad that we're a modern church, but I'm also glad that we are a holiness church. We are still a holiness church. Some of you may have the wrong idea of what holiness means. Uh, I know that some people... When they look at holiness, they think it's, you know, ladies with buns in the hair and the long dresses and the long shirt, uh, short shirt sleeves and all that sort of thing, men in suits and ties and that sort of thing. That's not really the biblical idea of holiness. The biblical idea of holiness is that what God has done in us is not just putting his stamp of approval on a sinful life and saying, okay, I'm going to save you now. You live however you want to. No. Holiness means that what God is doing in us is actually going to work out through our lives. That we're not going to live a sinning religion where we just go around acting like everybody else, acting just like the world, and say, you know what, we're good, it's fine, no problem, because there's grace and we're going to go to heaven. No, holiness actually means that what God is doing comes out in our lives. That there's a real, definite change. And this morning I just want to say to you, I am glad that we're a holiness church. I'm glad that we still preach holiness doctrine. I'm glad that we still encourage our people to live holy lives. Because you see, here's what happens. When we say that the Lord has taken up residence, the God of the universe has taken up residence in us, and we go right on living just like everybody else, the world looks at us and says, I don't buy it. 
I don't buy it. You're saying God has taken up residence in your life and you live just like I do and there's been no change? I'm glad that we're a holiness church this morning. I'm glad that we say that God can change a life. He can restore what he can restore what was broken. God can bring restoration to a broken life. I don't know about you, but he's done that for me. He's done that for me. And there's parts in my life that are still broken, and he's still working on them. He's so good, he's not done yet. And he's going to keep on working until the day that Jesus Christ returns, whether that means for me that I go by the way of the grave or that means that I join him in the air when he returns. Whatever that means, God's going to keep working on me. And I am so glad that we preach that. I'm so glad that we preach that not only grace, but there's holiness as well. And so I just want to encourage you. I, I, that's one of the things I love about our church is that we are a holiness church. Modern, yes, in a lot of our methods and a lot of the ways we do things, but also a church that says, you know what? God can make a definite change in a sinner's life. And we're living testimonies of that. Y'all not going to clap on that? Go ahead and clap on that because you really ought to. You really ought to. Um, God can definitely change us. Well, I do want to dive into the main thing I want to talk about this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series, The Bible's Greatest Hits. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Ryan Sims and C4 was here, he preached on love. And I don't actually remember, I, I probably did mention to him that it was our love week, and so that would be appropriate or whatever. But anyway, he preached on love, and I thought, oh man, this guy is going to come in with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he's going to steal my sermon outline from this Sunday, and I'm going to have to prepare something totally new. But as he preached, he preached on love in a totally different way than I'm going this morning. And so God is working this out where within about three-week time period, you're going to get two sermons on love. It must mean that God wants us to know more about love. I think he worked it out that way for a reason. So we are going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we talk about the Bible's greatest hits, as we talk about these portions of Scripture which have blessed people over the years, which we have found grace and we have found help and we have found hope in these Scriptures. It's not that the entire Bible isn't God-breathed, because it is. Boy, y'all are quiet today. Y'all going to have to work with me. If y'all don't work with me, y'all might be late to lunch. I'm just telling you. I'll do this old trick. I've got a short sermon prepared and a long sermon prepared. And the more you respond, the more I'm apt to go with the short sermon. So just, I'm just letting you know up front. We can get out on, amen, there we go. Somebody's getting it. Somebody's getting it. We can get out on time or we can go long. Look, it's a holiday weekend. I don't have anything I have to do. So uh, y'all come on long with me. Made me lose my place. I don't even know what I was talking about. First Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, though, known as the love chapter of the Bible. The love chapter. Because it's a short chapter, it's not one of the long... I think it is the shortest chapter in 1 Corinthians, but it is just so essential to understanding Christianity, to understanding walking with Jesus Christ. And if you've ever heard of this chapter before outside of a normal Sunday morning service, you've probably heard this chapter most of all read at weddings. Very popular wedding uh, section of scripture. Most of the time when I do a wedding, I would say about half the time when I do a wedding, uh, maybe even a little bit more than that, the bride and the groom want this chapter read as part of the wedding service, the wedding ceremony. Uh, it's very, very popular as a wedding scripture. But some folks complain that it really shouldn't be read at weddings. Because the love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not just any old love. It's agape. 
Agape, that's a Greek word. If you know Greek, any Greek word, you might know that one. Agape, that means God's love. It's a love that comes from God. It's a love that God gives to us. It is God's special higher love. Y'all remember that song back in the 80s, Give Me a Higher Love? Okay, that could be about agape because this is a higher love. This is a love of God that transcends the normal love that we have as people. And so I've had people say before, really, this shouldn't be read in weddings. Really, you, you should reserve this because it's God's love. But I disagree with them. I actually think this should be read at weddings because the couples I know that make the best go of it in marriage, the couples I know that last, the couples I know that love each other, they're loving with God's love. If they're loving with human love, it's real tenuous. It can fall apart pretty easily. But if you're loving with God's love, if God is loving through you as a married couple, then you're going to be more able to sustain the storms of life. You're going to be able, more able to continue on when things get tough. You want God to love through you. And so I think this is a great chapter, actually, to read at a wedding. Best marriages I've ever seen have been built on agape and not something else. But honestly, that's, marriage is not what the Apostle Paul was talking about in this chapter. That's not what he was really trying to get to. In fact, he was writing to a church, the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth had every single prom, problem that you could possibly think of. There was sin in the church. There was debate over spiritual gifts, all sorts of issues in the church at Corinth. In fact, Theologians tell us that Paul probably wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. There were originally four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of those that have survived and two of those that made it into God's Word. But we believe he had to write them four times because there were so many problems going on in this church. So two of those, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, survived and were added to the Bible as Scripture. One of the problems the church at Corinth had was in the area of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And if you don't know what spiritual gifts are, well, I'm about to tell you, so I'm glad you're here today to learn a little bit, little bit more about them. If you don't know what a spiritual gift is, it is a supernatural grace. Supernatural. Super meaning above. Natural meaning the world around us. It comes from above the world around us. It comes from a higher place, like that higher love that we were talking about. A spiritual gift is a supernatural grace. A grace is something God gives us that we don't deserve. Something good that God gives us that we don't deserve. A spiritual gift is a supernatural grace that God gives to every believer to further the mission of his church. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, he's, he's blessed you with at least one. He's probably blessed you with more than one. When we do our membership class about once a year, I'll take everybody through this and we'll get to the area about spiritual gifts and some people will say, oh, I don't have one of those. Uh, you might, and I always give a spiritual gifts test and they'll say, oh, I, pastor, I don't have any gifts. And I'm like, no, if you're a Christian, God's given you at least one. He's given you at least one spiritual gift. He's given you at least one of these graces. And it's not for you, it's for his church. It's for his mission. Okay, it's not so you can boast and say, look at this great gift that God has given me. It's for other people. So you don't get to brag about it because you're supposed to give it away in your life. That's what a spiritual gift is. All believers have at least one, but no believer has them all. There was only one person that had every spiritual gift, and his name was Jesus Christ. So if you're not him, you don't have all of them. 
And it's okay. Because that's why God brings us together. He brings us together with our different spiritual gifts so that all the gifts can be found in the church. He brings us all together. We all have different gifts. We come together, and then the body of Christ has all the gifts. So you're not going to have all of them. I don't have all of them. Okay, I, I have certain ones, but I don't have everyone. When we come together, we bring them together for God's glory. And, and by the way, a gift is not the same thing as a talent. Singing is not a spiritual gift. Now, God can have, can have blessed you with that gift, and I imagine some, sometimes he might supernaturally work in somebody that they would have a talent for singing or, or playing uh, music or whatever, but that's, or, or cooking or whatever. You might have a gifted art. I used to have a gifted art that I used a lot. That's a talent. That's not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are very specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So back up one chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists some of the spiritual gifts. It talks about the gift of wisdom. Boy, I like people who have that one. I love people who have that gift of wisdom. I love to be around them. I love to just, you hear it from them and you just know it's true. You know that God has given them something that can help you in your life. Gift of wisdom. Gift of knowledge. Studying, learning, putting, placing things together. That's part of that gift of knowledge. The gift of faith. Being able to believe things. Look, I know believers that are not the most educated people and they're not the most articulate people, but they have that gift of faith. And when you get in a pinch, you want one of them around you because they're going to have faith even when you don't have faith. And they say, look, I'm going to let you borrow some of my faith. You can keep going. In fact, when we talk about the gospel armor, the shield of faith is called the shield of faith. When you look uh, back at the Roman armor, Actually, the shield was made to link with other people's shields, and you had all this protection because the shield of faith linked together. And so these people can help you borrow their faith. Their faith can join with your faith. Anybody ever get down? Everybody, anybody ever start to doubt? Anybody ever start to lose faith? And isn't it great when a believer comes alongside of you who has that gift of faith, and they say, don't give up. Don't give up. I believe for you. I believe God's going to do something special in this situation. Look, I can't preach on every one of these. We'll be here all day, so let me, let me keep going. Gift of healing, gift of miracles, gift of prophecy, gift of discerning of spirits. They know if it's a good spirit or a bad spirit. Sometimes they even know specifically what spirit it is. Gift of tongues. Ooh, some of you from some backgrounds are like, oh, no, we've got to leave that one out, but it's still in the list. Still in the list, so let's just be real about it. Gift of interpretation gift of teaching, etc. So there's all these gifts, but the Corinthian church that Paul was writing these letters to, the Corinthian church had begun arguing about who had the better gift. My gift is better than yours. I have a prophetic gift. Your gift is just hospitality. But I have a prophetic gift. You know, and they started to build themselves up. They were proud, and they really liked the charismatic gifts. That's where they seemed to kind of really key in on. So they began arguing about who had the better gift and who was more important because of their gifts. And so they started making a mess of this church. This early church in Corinth began to become a mess because they were arguing about who had the better gift, which is the exact opposite of what spiritual gifts are supposed to do. Spiritual gifts are supposed to bring the church up, bring the church together, help the church go forward, and they were doing the exact opposite because they were keying in on these spiritual gifts. And the reason was simple, church. 
they had received spiritual gifts from God, but they were not exercising those gifts in a spirit of godly love. They had the gifts, but they did not have the love. And so that's why Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. Paul is addressing this and he says in the last line of 1 Corinthians 12, I will show you a more excellent way. In other words, I'm going to show you the way of love. You know why you guys are messing it up? You've got every gift in the world, but you don't have love. You don't have love. So you're, and again, this is God's love. This is not any old run-of-the-mill earthly love. This is God's love. You don't have agape. You don't have love, Paul says. And so he gets into 1 Corinthians 13. There's 13 verses there. And Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others and it is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. Are you guys ready for that day? I'm ready to know fully as I am known. I'm, I'm ready for that. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. So today I want to get to the meat of this passage. I want to get to the, to the meat of what Paul is saying to us about love and the greatness of love. And so I just want to, I'm going to give you a good three-point sermon today, okay? Three points on why godly love, agape love, is so important. Three reasons. Reason number one. Godly love purifies our ministry. You say, Brent, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a minister. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. If you know Jesus, you're a minister. You're a minister. You may not have a paid ministry. You may not stand up every Sunday morning and, and talk to people, but you, you are a minister. We have the priesthood of believers. You are a priest. You are a part of the holy people because of Jesus and what he's done in your life. So you have a ministry whether you know it or not. 
It might be a good ministry, it might be a bad ministry, but you have a ministry. Number one, godly love purifies our ministry. Let me take you back. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. What if we were to design the perfect Christian? Have you ever thought about that? If you could just sit down, and you know we're a church, so if we're going to design a perfect Christian, what we would do is form a committee. We'd form a committee to discuss it, talk about it, you know. If we were to design the perfect Christian, we would build an interdenominational committee to, you've heard of Build-A-Bear, this would be Build-A-Christian. We're going to build the perfect Christian. What would we include? If we had an interdenominational committee that was going to build the perfect Christian, I think my Pentecostal friends on that committee would say, look, if you're going to have a perfect Christian, tongues is a must. You have to include the gift of tongues. Christians who speak in languages they have never learned, heavenly languages, tongues of men and angels, we have to include that. So I believe my Pentecostal friends would say, look, that, that, we've got to start there. We've got to have tongues as part of this perfect Christian. But then my charismatic friends, and some of you might say, isn't charismatic and Pentecostal the same thing? Ask them, they'll say no. Um, but my charismatic friends would say, you know what, you have to include prophecy. You have to include prophecy. There's two types of prophecy in the Bible. There is foretelling, which is predicting a future event, and there is foretelling, which is saying this is the truth for right now in this culture at this time. And I believe my charismatic friends would say, you know what, you have to have both. You've got to have somebody who's able to see things that, that the normal person couldn't see, and you have to have somebody who's able to speak truth to power and speak truth into this world. And so I think my charismatic friends would say the perfect Christian would need to be prophetic. They would need to be a prophet. And so after those two, I think my Calvinist friends in the circle would have to speak up. I think they would have to jump in there. And I think my Calvinist friends would say, wait a minute now. You're getting a little far out into the spooky woods for me. Let's pull it back for a minute. What we really need is good biblical knowledge. This Christian would have to have several degrees in theology. They'd have to have a proper understanding of church history. They'd have to know all five parts of TULIP and be able to teach those to you. That would be a must. That would be a must if this is to be the perfect Christian. But then our friends from the Salvation Army would come along. And I think they would chime in and say, well, that's great. So they, they can prophesy and they can speak in tongues and they have all this knowledge. But what about charity? What about caring for and identifying with the poor? What about breaking down social barriers and caring for everyone in God's created image? Surely the perfect Christian needs to be about loving the least of these, right? And I think everybody would agree, yeah, that has to be part of the perfect Christian. But then at the end, I think my, my brothers and sisters in the third world church, all around the world, we don't even, sometimes I'm not sure we can even identify with them. They live a life that's so different for Christ than we do. But I think the church in the third world, the suffering church, would step in and remind us that Jesus told us in this world we would have trouble. In many places around the world, you cannot be comfortable and be a Christian. We're a rarity around this world that we can be comfortable in our Christianity for the very most part. It's not that way around the world. 
But I think they would say, Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. Every time you worship, your life might be in danger in some places. True Christians face dungeon and fire and sword, as the old song says. The perfect Christian would have to know how to suffer for the cause of Jesus. The perfect Christian would, even, would maybe even have to lay his or her life down as a martyr for the cause, as a martyr for Jesus Christ. And so we'd take all those things and we'd wrap them up and we'd say, that's the perfect Christian. That's the perfect Christian. They would be tongue-talking. They would be prophetically speaking. They would be Bible-knowing. They would be alms-giving. They would be long-suffering. It would be the perfect Christian. And then the Apostle Paul would come along and Paul would say, if love is not the driving force behind what they do, then the music of their life is like a percussion instrument banging over and over and over. There's no melody. There's no song. It's just noise. You could have all those things. You could have designed the perfect Christian, but if they did not have love as a driving force, it wouldn't move anything forward. That's how important love is. That's how important the love of God is. Believers, godly love is the key ingredient of our lives, or at least it should be. You can have the rest of the recipe perfect, but if you leave out love, nobody wants to eat what you're cooking. You have to have love. You must have love in your life. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. That's point one. Point number two. Godly love perfects our mindset. Godly love perfects our mindset. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I want to give you an exercise this morning. This is, this is kind of old. It certainly is not original to me. And so you might have heard this before, but it's just always a great checkup to do when you come to this chapter. What you do is you take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and every time you see the word love, you replace it with your own name. And then you see if what you're saying is true. And so I don't want to pick on any of you guys this morning, so I'll pick on myself. We'll, we'll put my name in there. The first thing it starts out with is Brent is patient. Why does it have to start there? I mean, it can start a lot of other places, right? I'm the one who wants it done yesterday. I was working on a vacuum cleaner. Our vacuum cleaner messed up. And my dad used to work on vacuum sewing machines for a living. And my wife says, why don't you just take it to your dad? And I'm like, no, I'm going to do this. About 30 minutes in, I wanted to pick it up by the handle, beat it on the floor, throw it out in the front yard, and go buy another one. I am not. Patience might not be my strong point. That's just what I'm saying to you. Not my strong point. I kind of like things done yesterday. I, I, I'm not. I, I'll, I'll work on that one. Brent is kind. Well, most of the time, I think I'm kind. Most of the time. I mean, stupidity kind of gets on my nerves every once in a while, you know. I'm not always great at suffering fools, but you know, I think most of the time I'm kind. I'm not doing so well. 
Brent does not boast. Well, at least I've got that one down, Pat. I'm, very, I'm really, really good at being humble, so at least I've got that one. I don't boast. I don't brag. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> Brent does not dishonor others. Well, there may have been a few times. may have been a few times. Brent is not self-seeking. I don't know, Lord, am I? Show me if I am. Show me if I am. Brent is not easily angered. Well, I will tell you, I'm a lot better than I used to be. Come a long ways. Thank you, Lord. But you get the picture. Every one of these phrases, you just put your name in there, and it will evaluate your life. And it will evaluate your love. Might be good practice. Hey, we might ought to do it once a week. Just look at it, see where we are. See how we're doing. It can be pretty telling where we are on a scale of unloving to loving. That's most of the second point, but before we move on, I feel like i got to say this. In our culture, in our day and time, I feel like this has to be said. Because the word love is abused out there right now. It is abused. It's straight up abused. I don't know any other way to say it. The word love is twisted. The word love is used for a lot of things that aren't love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, I want to highlight that one more time. It says, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. If you don't delight in evil and you rejoice with the truth, now you're going to be called unloving. If you say, thus saith the Lord, this is what God's word says on this issue or that issue, if you come down the line on that, people will say, you're so judgmental. You're so unloving. But not God's love. God's love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. I mean, I've even heard pastors say, and I have to admit, you're watching a television show, you're watching a movie, and, and there's a comedian on there, somebody who's funny, and they're, they're saying some unrighteous, ungodly stuff. And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself laughing along with it. That's rejoicing in evil. That's not rejoicing with the truth. We have to be careful because we, we can get caught up in that so quick. And there's a whole lot of evil in this world right now that people want us to rejoice in. And love has to say no. Love has to say, I just can't do it. I just can't do it because my allegiance is to him rather than this world. His definition of love, you can redefine it all you want to, his definition of love is the one I'm going with. I'm not going to delight in evil. I'm going to rejoice with the truth. Point number three. Godly love pushes us to maturity. Godly love pushes us to maturity. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12 says, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What some people get out of this passage is that the spiritual gift ceased after the canon of the Bible was fully finished. Y'all, that's a reach for interpretation. That's a, that's a reach. I think the Holy Spirit has always given the gifts to the church. I don't think they ceased at any point in time. I don't think they're going to cease until Jesus Christ returns. 
So I don't think Paul is saying the cessation of the gifts. What Paul is saying is that when Christ comes, we won't need those gifts anymore. The perfection will have come. The completeness will have come. We won't need that anymore. When Jesus comes, we won't need that. Spiritual gifts are for the mission of the church to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But once that is done, we won't need to prophesy. We won't need to speak in tongues. We won't need to study the Bible even anymore. We'll know as we are known. But then Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When Jesus comes, our faith will have become sight. Okay, What we believed and hoped for, the faith that we placed, we'll know then. We won't have to have faith. We'll see. We'll know. Our faith will have become sight. When Jesus comes, our hope will be fulfilled. What we've hoped for, what we've longed for, we're going to know it's reality. It's, it's, it's going to be real. It's going to be there. Our hope will have been fulfilled. But the love we have in our hearts will never change. It will remain even into eternity. Faith we won't need anymore. Hope will be fulfilled. But love will go all the way into eternity. It will remain. That's why love is so great. Paul is saying these other gifts are great. Faith is great. Hope is great. But love is the greatest. Love is the greatest. And I love faith and I love hope. But love is the greatest. Church, I want to finish today by reading a story to you. As I was researching for this sermon, I came across this story and I just thought, this has to be used. This has to be shared. And I'm going to have to read it to you. And it's, it's, it's not real short, but I think it's going to be worth it. I want you to see what love looks like in a godly life. Or what godly love looks like in a life. Maybe I can say it that way. So I want to read this story to you. This is a true story. This is a true story. The following story was told by a man named Tom Schmidt. It was recorded in John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted. So this is a true story. It's not a made-up story. But it goes this way. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place that one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or onto, into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, 
and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, that she had been here bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she had gotten weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often I would when I would pause, she would continue to cite the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 different directions at once with all of the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie there? And she said, I think about my Jesus. 
I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked her, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in this life, you know. I'm one of those kind that's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Where did Mabel's power come from? She had experienced and was filled with the love of God. Do you need to be a more loving person? Do you need to let the God of the universe love through you? Do you need to be a person who has that agape love in your heart for God, for others? When people come into contact with you, is that the first thing they think? Here's a person who loves people. Or do they think something else? You see, the Apostle Paul says that as a Christian, our lives are supposed to be marked with love. Love never fails. Love remains. Faith is great. Hope is great. But love's the one that gets the job done. Do you need to be a more loving person? I confess to you there's times that I do. There's times that I do. But I thank God that he's still working on me. In fact, I think what he's doing is he's trying to make me into love. Is he doing that for you? Are you letting him do that for you? Do you need him to do it more? I'm going to ask that you stand. We're going to have one final song. But if you need to be a more loving person, and if you're honest, that's going to be a lot of us. If you need to be a more loving person, I would just ask that you would first of all confess that. And you're going to confess that by moving out of your seat and coming down here. And second of all, you're going to stand here and you're just going to pray. You're just going to ask that God would make you a more loving person. That he would live his love through you. 
man, if Christians love better, we would change the world. If Christians love better, our enemies would become our friends. If Christians love more, then we would see people broken like Mabel, and we would not see somebody to be discarded. We'd see somebody who's valuable in God's sight. Do you need to be more loving? If so, won't you come? Let me be filled with kindness and compassion for the one, the one for whom you loved and gave your son for humanity, increase my loving won't you come this so morning let all my life tell of who you are. come and stand in his love receive his love this morning
even in justice mine they would feel the father's love even in justice mine they would feel the father's love I'd like to ask that those down front if you would join hands with somebody next to you if you're in the pew you can do the same we're supposed to be a people of love. Not the world's definition, but God's definition. And I don't know about you, but I want to love more like Jesus every day. Father, we love you. And God, we fall so short so many times. But God, we thank you that you've never given up on us. God, we thank you that in our weakness, you are made strong. God, we thank you that even though we can love selfishly, that Jesus loved selflessly. And I thank you that that spirit, the Holy Spirit, that raised him from the dead lives inside of us. And so we have a chance at it. We have a hope and we have a future and we have a promise and we have a destiny. And so much of that is wrapped up in how we love people. So God, this week, I pray that you would help us to love people. I pray that you would help us to love that person that gets on our nerves. I pray you would help us to love that person who can't stand us. Because that's what Jesus would do. Lord, when we leave this place, I pray that you would send us out as an army of love. And that somebody would be changed through our lives this week. Changed for the better. Thank you, God, for being here today. Thank you that you are ministering and you are speaking. Help us to love and serve you more. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray because he's the one who loved us enough to give himself for us. And all of Rushwood said together, amen. Look, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night. We'll see you next Sunday morning. God bless you. Go in peace.